Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Kenny Holmes and Robert Kraft. With a motley crew. I mean, I think we have to... Yeah, it's, we're, we're all here. Share it. we got to take roll. you got to have a roll with butter. Mash Raider here. Mash Raider's in the room and... Composer Carol. Hey. <laughs> oh my God! That's like See, she's that clearly had too, many, too many Red Bulls. This is sports. Sports. <laughs> what is wrong with it? It's been a long weekend. Okay. Oh, we this the, is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio, and um, we have a lot to get to. The Emmys were last night. Um, yeah. Did I win? We're gonna have to get into the numbers. Well, here. first of all, I want to just we have put conflicting a little, reports here, so we're gonna have to go category by category. And make sure conflicting reports, and also. Clearly, we're not very good at math because we have to add. <laughs> there was only total. seven. There's seven categories, and we haven't been able to figure out who won. By the so. way, and we also knew the answer to four of them for an entire week. <laughs> <laughs> so bear with us. Um, as they say, let's just, I think we could actually just sum this up by saying Robert won. I mean, we just, we, we know this. We can get right to Who's we? When you say we. <laughs> I, think I was trying to see if we had a cricket noise on the board, but I don't think we did. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we do now, though. Big guest on the show one. today, Emmy winner for Succession, Nicholas Bertel, coming on in just a bit. Oh, Excited he, to talk with he's him. He's awesome. He is. And um, perfect timing. I mean, yep. we had him planned to come on the show. He comes to L.A. and swings by, grabs an Emmy, and then uh, comes on the show. Isn't so. that incredible? I wonder how he gets his Emmy back home. He doesn't live in L.A. And um, it'll be interesting to hear how you... How do you travel with an Emmy? They're big. They good have a good big problem base. to have. You know what? That's a quality problem. How do we do on our Emmy Awards? Well, first, uh, we want to tell you about our presenting partner because Correct. this show is made possible by our good friends at Spitfire That's, that's Audio. called a hook, what Robert just did. Oh, yeah. We'll yeah. Be, the audience deep, is sticking around a deep now. tease. <laughs> Stick around. He's not the, the, the news producer, but um, well done on that, Robert. I like um, that. If you're a composer listening, you probably already know about Spitfire, but Spitfire makes sample libraries to elevate your music, different types of instruments to make your library grow. And you can, I mean, Carol, you use all kinds of Spitfire instruments. I know that. Yeah, I do. It's so great. <laughs> a lot of composers are all using these for mock-ups well, all, or sometimes for the final thing. And they're recorded at Air Studios, one of the great studios in the world, not only in London, because that's where it is. It's just a beautiful church that George Martin, who produced the Beatles, converted into a world-class studio. That's where Spitfire creates a lot of their music. I know that they have relationships with Hans Zimmer, uh, and I think they used the Bernard Herrmann Library. Bernard Herrmann, who scored all the Hitchcock films. They sample and yeah. create libraries with his music. So, And their latest big project, the BBC Symphony Orchestra Package, which comes out in October October 24th. Yeah, that's nice. going to be really cool. So um, a lot to look forward to with Spitfire, and they're always coming out with new things. And they don't have sales very often, but for our listeners, we have an exclusive offer. Use the <gasps> promo code Whoa. SCORE, and you can save a third of the price. And some of these packages... They're 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 jam packed and they can be pricey. So saving jam a third packed. off. Yeah, you can jam with them. They, you can jam with them certainly. Go to SpitfireAudio.com. Use the promo code SCORE. Thirty three and a third percent off that retail. That's price. just what we do. We're trying to help That's the composer community out. Correct. And um, you can save just because you're listening 
to our show and our BS sometimes. <laughs> um, no. We're we're happy to have Mash Raider back on the show this week, so we can discuss. Yeah, the audience? The outcome. Everybody, oh. hey! Oh, there. Thank you. <laughs> so let let's get to the let's get to the numbers. The the big surprise of the night at the Emmys, which is kind of weird to say it was a surprise because every other year it was an obvious win, but Game of Thrones won the big prize of the night. And I got these outraged tweets from Mash Raider. Nobody liked the end of Game of Thrones. Such a huge buildup that they botched. They botched it. They ruined it. And then they got to go up there in front of all their fellow writers and say, thank you so much. We did such a good job. The big surprise of the night, the real overthrow at the Emmys was Fleabag. Yeah. I think that, you know, Veep. They had a great night. They, they won thought, three or four different Emmys. Yep. Phoebe, who is Fleabag, uh, taking home Best Actress, she wrote, uh, and maybe Best Comedy. And, oh, in her spare time after winning for Fleabag, she is the writer of Killing Eve. Hmm. And um, so she just triumphed last night and surprised everyone and Deserve. And that's a show that I I don't think is coming back. I think that's it. That's it. Yeah, just two, two seasons, two and done. Yep. I loved the line from Bill Hader when he was introing the limited series. He's like limited series or canceled series. Oh, nice. He's like nobody wants to see season two of Chernobyl. <laughs> uh, Kenny, you were actually at the Emmys, covering the Emmys on the purple carpet. What what was. was up with the purple carpet? That's a great question. Um, I overheard one of the big wigs of the Academy saying that it just worked with the Fox color scheme, and it was a, a switch <laughs> up. I don't know that there was any sort of cause or anything. It did look weird, though, when we first walked in. It was like... Robert, any whoa. insight from your Fox peeps? Definitely. Um, purple carpet. I can now reveal is a tribute to Prince, uh, and I think that well, there you have it. Oh, there it is. That's See, a first on a, Score the Podcast. We get our scoops, <laughs> our Fox <laughs> scoops from Robert, who That's it. still has. Uh, you have a name played up in the top floor of the building. There, it's actually the Robert. They say Robert Kraft presents the Fox Studios lot. I don't know if you've driven on recently, but my name is above. <laughs> the entire. I don't think this is true, but <laughs> well. If anyone can get proof of this and send a in picture. My can you, do you talk to anybody interesting after either before or after they won their uh, awards last night? Um or Sunday night. We I think my my favorite moment was we talked to Henry Winkler who's always like the nicest guy in the world and um he this was before and he said that uh if he doesn't win it's fine cuz he wants to share the love and it's really cool cuz he only he won his first Emmy last year but he said that he keeps his Emmy right by the front door so anytime a package gets delivered he can thank the driver and his Emmy and like start an Emmy speech again. <laughs> He's like, "Oh, I just want to thank you so much," and uh, he guides the Picks eyes of the, the driver award. over to his Emmy. <laughs> so he he's great. He's great, and um, yeah, we got to talk to a lot of people. Got to talk to some of the queer eye guys, which are hilarious. And um, I spoke with Lauren Michaels after he won another Emmy. Oh, saw Kyle uh, Mooney and Beck Bennett, who I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of the, the actors on. Um, SNL. It was it was fun. It's exhausting though. People think like, oh, how cool, but it is. It's hot. It's so hot, and um, you're you're wedged into a group of people, and 
you just kind of have to throw elbows and, and we get have in a, there. a a kind of a sad violin melody <laughs> we can play at this point. It's fun. It's fun to is be there. Feeling but, sorry but now also, for Kenny. <laughs> it, it is. It is tiring. I will say. Yeah. So if that's why I can't even speak today, I'm, I'm just flubbing all over the place. You know what? We are uh, flub the podcast. Is our new sequel. <laughs> but I was stoked to see um, Jarrell Jerome oh. Jarrell. Yes. For uh, when they see us, oh, oh he was he's great, good. Corey he's Wise. Really Corey Wise, his, his that episode, episode the the last episode, episode four, genius. That was just incredible. And I'm just pleased that that show got acknowledged because they were unfortunately in a category up against Chernobyl. Yeah, and um, how made, cool was that moment when he won and everyone stood and just like there were tears in everyone's eyes and they were clapping. There, there was a lot of a excitement yep, for him. A lot of emotion, and uh, he was pumped. And also um, Billy Porter, that was exciting for Amazing. Pose. So um, it was it was a fun night. Um, the show was a little awkward, if at best. The the actual show, the non-host thing. They need to get a host. Yeah, I actually am available next year, so it's something I'd like oh, to the, just put uh, out there. Uh, we picked seven categories. Good. Uh, we've already been through. We should be able to do the math easily on this, but okay. we're just going to go through real quick through all of these main title theme music. Kenny and Robert both picked Succession, which won. Yay. Carol and I both screwed that one up. Okay. We lose. Oh, look at you with the buzzer. Okay, so I'm, <laughs> I'm just keeping go. count here. One. I have Kenny enough. with the no, soundboard. I, I, I have enough fingers. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Music in limited series. Uh... Everybody but Robert. <laughs> okay. You're going to keep just that one finger up. Right. Uh, everyone but Robert got points for Chernobyl. For Hilder. And music in series. Uh, only Carol got it. Nice. Well done, Carol, with Ramin. Ramin. So are we keeping track of the scores I, here? Um, I have Robert moved my here. one finger. I'm waiting for another win. Come on. Uh, music in documentary. Free Solo. Did I get Marco it? Beltrami, um, and only Robert got it. Damn. Okay. Good, so good. So, so what's our score through the Creative Arts Emmys? Wait, I think I got confused here. Didn't we do this also and last week? And main title. Yes. Yeah, didn't we? Well, but we we're had, adding them now, so we're getting yeah, the, the didn't final we have, tallies. Like, the three of us, Kenny, Robert, two, two, two. and I. Two, and two, Matt, two. Matt has one. Good. Yeah. Moving on. So moving into the next week, because we all, uh, Ro- Robert and I picked Nicholas Bertel. Succession. Correct. Uh, limited series. Kenny and yours truly, Mash Raider, picked Chernobyl, which was our big winner for limited series. Um, Robert and Carol, unfortunately, no points. Ooh. So what's our what's our tally? We have two the two main categories left. Kenny's leading. We have Kenny on three, Robert, Matt, and I are doing two. Okay. Well, so. I thought I only had one, so that's perfect. Okay, no, because you had Chernobyl and Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Well, yeah. that's I think that's the only other one I got. Is it too uh, late to cheat? Yes. Think, okay, go ahead. No, I'm standing by my... my um, go ahead. Uh, comedy. Yes, yes. Uh, the big winner of the night was Fleabag, and only Robert got that one. <laughs> so and that, that was, pulls Robert up to three points. That was a yes. big upset. Big upset. That was, that was Veeps to yep. win. Yep. So here's the deal. Dramas... The best drama went to Game of Thrones, yes, which yes. Nobody, nobody picked. picked. Nobody picked. So we end in an unsatisfying tie between, Kenny and, between Kenny and Robert. Right fight, on. Fight, fight. We need an extra category for something. I vote for... Well, it's too late. It's got to carry on to the Oscars or something now. Oh, darn. 
I was going to say. I mean, if we go oh. to last year, I'm still winning by a half. Or, oh, that's or nice. rumor has it that this could be settled in maybe our finale episode of Name That Score. Okay. I'll, ta- I'll take my three points into the final episode of Name That Score. And our category. <laughs> Not in this episode, but okay. coming soon. Coming soon. Wow. I'm worth waiting for. Awesome. Do we have Nick Patel? We do have Nick Patel coming up. I do want to mention, too, because, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on Seinfeld earlier this season. Yes, and yes. it's also the 25th anniversary of Friends. You're so right. How nice for the songwriters and the band. And uh, Did you say you knew the writers of this song? I know the writers well. I've. Um, it wasn't the Rembrandts. They're the band who cut the song. Um, and God bless them. What a nice... Nice track to have on TV every week for the rest of your life, many times a week in some cases. The writers were Michael Skloff, great piano player, arranger, and songwriter in L.A., and Allie Willis, who is arguably one of the biggest songwriters of pop and soul music. She's any written, any notable? Oh, Allie wrote Boogie Wonderland for Earth, Wind, and Fire. She wrote The Color Purple Musical. Um, oh, wow. That's on Broadway. She's written tons of hits for Chaka Khan and big artists, all kind of in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, Allie is a legend, truly a legend. And she and Michael, it'd be interesting to get the story behind that song. Um, Do you think there's ever going to be shows like this again? I guess maybe Big Bang Theory has is in the workings of trying to be at this level, but like Seinfeld and Friends, like is there going to be maybe The the Office? office. The Office, I guess, is is making its mark too at this point. But it's kind of now like these all these shows from like the 90s and 2000s, they're they're being reintroduced into the streaming world and all these huge deals are being made. Do you think that's going to even exist anymore with the way the amount of content that's been coming out? I wonder. I mean, it really comes down to how these shows are distributed because there was a there was a very understandable system in place on Thursday nights on NBC at eight o'clock you saw the next episode of a thirty minute sitcom now okay how do you do that on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Apple do you bunch them all up and you watch the whole thing on a Saturday and a Sunday and even the other series that are maybe in the same you know the it's always sunny type shows that are 14, 15 seasons in right now. They're not nearly at that They're level. not the network. They're not what network was 15 years ago, no. you know, and having that number of eyeballs, um, well, even though they do of, have huge audiences. Back then, you, you didn't have that many options. And on, like, network TV in that time period, Correct. that was the only thing people watched. Yep. I don't even think cable, did cable even have series in that time frame? I don't yeah. Even, Nothing notable though. I mean, like USA, there was like Murder She Wrote, and probably the biggest stuff like yeah. that. But the <laughs> right. biggest thing that showed up was in '84, the Fox Network came with Married with Children, and oh, that yeah. was suddenly there were four venues. There was no cable of note. CNN, you know, cable news networks sort of showed up. Ted Turner, um, but it's just such a different landscape now. Yeah, comedy's different, and um, and TV shows are films now. The budgets are massive. Right. For and not just the actors, but for the sets. And the opposite is also true. Films are TV shows. 
In other words, sometimes you go in with a film to a motion picture studio. Like you just saw. In which? Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and the uh, upcoming Breaking Bad movie. The Breaking mm. Bad movie. Yep, I got my tickets. I'm super excited about. Oh, yeah, you're going to see it in person. Yeah, in theater. they're they're doing and- a limited theatrical, and um, they keep adding little screenings here and there. So if you're trying to go watch it in the theater, which I heard, which is October 11th, 11th. Yep, Friday, October 11th. I'll be there downtown LA. I'm excited. Right on. And you said Downton did well at the box office. Downton was. Uh, we had an interesting weekend this weekend. It was, I think, surprising to all the viewers of box office because traditional male centric and male movie star movies were eclipsed by a British drawing room comedy. So Downton Abbey crushed, almost doubled Ad Astra, which is Brad Pitt in space, Mm -hmm. and Rambo 11, whatever it was called, uh, Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) So um, I feel like these are the elevator pitches in the room. It's Brad Pitt in In space. space. (laughs) Do you know what? I I think that's probably doing that. I've heard that's actually a good movie, Ad Astra. It is, and I can't think of one executive in Hollywood, maybe with a few exceptions, that you wouldn't be in an elevator say, I got Brad Pitt in space, and say, (laughs) when can you start? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, you figure, that's a movie star, you can figure out that picture. Um, Rambo, not entirely sure what they're doing there, unless there's a secret Rambo audience that will see anything. Clearly, it's not as big as they anticipated because Downton Abbey, which was wonderful. I mean, that's the best adjective I can think of. It is a wonderful movie. It's Well, people who haven't seen the series understand what's going on. I actually talked to somebody after the movie yesterday, quite accidentally, who had seen it and said uh, they love the movie. So, who yes, hadn't seen it? They hadn't. They seen hadn't the seen the series. I'm ah, sorry. Okay, I hadn't seen the series. They saw the movie and they loved it. I think if you've seen the series, it's a little bit of bringing the old crowd back, and you kind of love sure all the characters. Um, one thing I must say, certainly from the perspective of score of the podcast, the music is absolutely magnificent in the movie, and um, it's even. You know, the show is cinematic. The movie is really a widescreen affair, and it's beautiful, huge kind of vistas of beautiful green England and the countryside, and the music brings that out. So altogether a wonderful experience. I recommend it. I I'm cool. feel so relaxed after that explanation. Soothing, Robert, soothing voice. So uh, then we're going to go into Ad Astra, where it's all anxiety <laughs> and uh, tension. Brad Astra. Brad Astra. Not bad. I just came up with that. I so think, on that note, I think we should... Uh, yeah, that was definitely a good one. That was a really on. good one, Brad. <laughs> Matt, do you have any closing more uh, complaints about Game that. of Thrones? Do you... Are you... This is your last chance because it's over. Yeah. Winter I, is here. It, or? I, I'm ready for it to be over. Can we let it end? Let's let it end. <laughs> Let's never speak of this again. What should have won? Uh, I mean, honestly... What should have won is probably Better Call Saul because every episode is its own movie and it's thought out in three acts in a very cinematic way. It's shot artfully. It's nonverbal and visual storytelling. It's great acting all around. Everything is uh, superb 
So if it were up to me, and if campaigning wasn't such a big part of the Emmys process and, and all the other factors that go into a campaign, I would have given it to Better Call Saul. And I think we can wrap it up by going like this. Matt's cringing. Ah, my ears. Thank you very much. We wait till the Emmys next year. Unfortunately, nobody watched the Emmys, so it doesn't matter. They did terribly. They did terribly. So not a big viewership. Way down this year. And welcome to the people that have skipped through this first block about the Emmys. I think we're on to Nicholas Bertel. But speaking of the Emmys, coming up after the break, he... Did he, did he bring it with him? I don't know. Nicholas Burchell is joining us. He has God, the Emmy so. for main title theme for Succession and a lot more to talk about. New projects coming up and uh, two Oscar nominations that we're going to talk about as well. Stick around. Cool. Nick Burchell is up next. Hey, Matt Schrader here, director of Score, of film music documentary. For the latest news from the film music world, follow us on Facebook. Just search Score, a film music documentary. Or let us know who you want to hear next on the show on Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We are stoked right now for our guest. I'm such a fanboy of Succession and uh, we've been trying to make this work. Nicholas Bretel joining the show. Nick. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm so excited to be here. Are and you I, are you hungover? I mean, you just no. <laughs> won the Emmy. <laughs> I'm not hungover. I feel great. Oh, I good. Feel great. Yeah. I was a little hazy the next day, but just from being disoriented. Did you party like a rock star till 8 a.m. the next morning? We we. I wish I could say we did. We didn't really. We. I mean, we were there. There's a, a great governor's ball after the ceremony, and uh, we were there till. You no, know, it was very, very reasonable, like to like 11 or something like that. I think the yeah. first question that you're asked after a win like that is, where is the Emmy? The Emmy is back at the hotel room. Back at the hotel yeah. room. Yeah, and it's, and it's you know, the Emmys are, it's large and it's heavy. And when you, we, we have to go back to New York and they give you like this huge traveling box. Which is it. carry on or I, do you have to... I'm, ki- I'm kind of. It. I need to explore that this week. I you got to walk no, through it has security to be, with that. Thing. I think it has to be carried. There's no way you, you check that. I think. Um, so I have to. I, explore and then that. You, and yeah. then you get the cool pat down where they're like, "Hey, pull that out. What is that? It's sharp, by the way. It's sharp. The the the. Po- there's very pointy parts on the. Nicholas Bertel was arrested at LAX. <laughs> no, it's, for it's dangerous. No, you're holding. It's like watch out where you're pointing. A TSA agent. <laughs> I would say that carrying your M8. Emmy from Los Angeles to New York is the definition of a quality problem. That, that's got to be <laughs> I, I agree, something I agree. that... It's like a $50 fee too, right? Extra bag for that? Thing? I don't know. I, w- I will keep you guys posted. <laughs> because this is your first Emmy, correct? Yes. It is your first never, Emmy. I mean, yeah, you, never. of course, Nick, uh, who I've had the pleasure of working with, and we're going to have some great time talking about our wonderful collaboration together, <laughs> which uh, is historic, I think, on many levels. But you also... Of course, nominated for Moonlight and Beale Street, both with Barry Jenkins, who I believe you're about to start 
a TV series with, correct? We have started, yep. Oh, you've started it. Yep. Um, I can tell you a couple things. One of my favorite books, Underground Railroad. Amazing I just book. loved it. And one Incredible. of my favorite authors, Colson Whitehead, actually have bought and haven't started The Nickel, which I believe is his new book. Nickel Boys, I believe. Nickel Boys, yes. correct. And, um, and so when you say you've started, meaning the series is in production now? Yes, Yes, and I've started working. We're starting to brainstorm things, but um, you know, one of the great things, and we can talk about this, you know, at length, is when when I work with Barry, we we usually start talking about things even before uh, production has begun, and there's sort of an initial kind of brainstorming, very you know, just finding his initial feelings and instincts on things, um, and then it's a great process of seeing what those early kind of ideas are, and then how they evolve. And uh, Underground Railroad too, there's some. Uh, music that's actually in the world of the characters, some on-camera music that mm. I'm helping explore. As period well. music? Uh, yeah, some some period music, um, and uh, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting story. So there's yeah, it's, a, that, it's yeah. a wonderful evocation of both the historic events and also a lot of kind of sort of the hyper reality of exactly. things that could happen. Exactly. Magic reality. I once read. Correct me if I'm wrong, that you started working with Barry um, and he hadn't heard your music yet. Is totally it, true. Is, I didn't know this at how, all. How is it possible that a director hires you without hearing you? <laughs> you just had a good vibe. It's a good question. I mean, I, I love the way you spell your name. I did not know. No, he told me we were doing an interview for uh, If Beale Street Could Talk last year and it was, it was a podcast with Deadline, I believe. And uh, we were. We were talking and all of a sudden he's like, I don't know if I told you this, but I I had never heard your music when I hired you. And and I did not know that at all. I assumed so the way that the way that I first met Barry was I was working with Adam McCann, the big short. And uh, the producers of the big short, uh, to the producers Jeremy Kleiner and Dee Dee Gardner, I had worked with before on Twelve Years a Slave. Mm. And one night that summer I was having dinner with Jeremy and he started telling me about this incredible script that he was producing and he got really emotional uh talking about it and uh, he said it's called moonlight and i asked him if i could read it and when i read it i was just blown away by it it was you know i i've said this before but it felt like a piece of poetry it was mm. is the most beautiful script i'd ever read mm. and i asked jeremy i was like is there any way i could meet barry you know i'd love to talk to him and so we met at uh at the bar at the ace hotel in downtown la yeah. and uh we were initially just meeting for coffee and then we ended up having this like multi-hour conversation over wine where we were talking about movies and life and music and everything and it was from that initial conversation that we just you know we we just started exploring these ideas together and that was how we started working together and so the whole time you know then we ended we worked together moonlight and then you know i was lucky enough to you know they asked me back to work on beale street the whole time i'd always assumed that before that early meeting that jeremy might have sent some of my music or anything you know and uh and barry just said that he liked talking to me that first day That's incredible. and i was like that you know and i honestly i don't even know who to that you know thank the my lucky stars i guess that that was isn't that possible. like half the battle though know. is having that connection because i feel like even if you if he loved your music, if he didn't get along with you, that that's a worse problem. I think that was his, you know, and 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 one hundred percent agree with that. It's the, because the process of film music, especially, is so collaborative. I mean, there's no there. I really believe there's no way to do it 
without that kind of a close collaboration um, because that's actually what what the job is you know it's not let me watch this th- this this pro- you know interesting project let me see what you're working on and then let me go off and bring you things you know that's not <laughs> that's not what this is yeah. i mean i think that you know it's possible to do it that way i can't conceive of doing it that way just because i it just feels like the key is about this connection not just with the work but with the people who have made this work you know and understanding what they are hoping for and what they're hoping to feel because that's i think that it's a and it's it's a very intangible kind of thing that happens and it's through these conversations where it's actually a very intimate process where you know you're sitting with somebody they come and they sit they're sitting on your couch and you know you're asking questions like you know really deep questions of not just like what do you feel but what is you know what is the like what is the deep underlying emotion that we are seeking here those kinds of questions and so without that i think you're right without that kind of rapport um it would it would be very difficult i think to get to those places i think i just understood something about film scoring hearing you say that which you'd think i would have maybe i realized it before but for the kind of films particularly that you've worked on it sounds almost obvious but you have to go through that process of collaboration and intimacy because you are the musical voice for the director and for the story and you have to really to have it be accurate and first class you need to have every granular detail about their emotions the emotions in the story it may be slightly different for some kind of programmed movies that are action movies that it's really you need to hit the beats but in the movies that you've been doing you're inside these characters and i realized you have to understand what barry wants to express and do it for him absolutely because he can't compose the music and he loves music i mean that's the thing i think i think a a great starting point for this kind of a relationship is if the director loves music you're you're already ready for for a, a successful partnership i think the only tricky times really come when someone maybe subconsciously doesn't really love music or doesn't really love how music and movies work together that's where it gets difficult because then i think there are other almost like more existential questions that arise from the type of work that you're trying to make um which can be important too because again it goes back to the question of what does the director want that's really what it is and so for example like you know, I don't want to write a score for a, a film that the director doesn't love. You know, it's not about me. It's not something that I'm saying, oh, this is I I think this is right. We have to do that. You know, it's much more like what do you really want and how can I then take that and and believe in it from my own, um, you know, sensibility. But it's really about tailoring it to their wavelength. You know, that's what it is. It's not, you know, I if if we couldn't figure that out then i you know i wouldn't want to do it L- listen you know? up aspiring composers yeah well that's that's the number one thing but it's I about think, them being happy like you know yeah i think you can share with the perspiring composers who are listening what happens maybe this has happened to you before when what the director wants is wrong and i say that because it takes either a great amount of internal dialogue on your part to say, maybe it isn't wrong. Maybe it's just my expectation for that is different. Or you have that really strong feeling that either what you'd written is exactly what it needs or leaving something out there where he wants music. Have you 
developed chops for dealing with those distances. Are you, are you a good salesman? Well, you know, is it, I, I, think, I think the key, you know, at the end of the day, it really is about the film that the director wants to make. It has to be. Yeah. And um, it's not, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't make the movie. And, and, I, and you, we really are in service of the director and the, and the producers and the, and the creative team. So I think, you know, the most important thing to do is if you do believe in an idea, you should express that and you should keep, mm. you can keep presenting that idea, yeah. you know, um, there are, you know, and there are times where, you know, because I think the, the key thing that I think about a lot is, you know, I don't, I don't actually want to convince, have to convince somebody to put it, I never want to like win an argument and get a piece of music in a movie. Oof. I never, because you know what, like, that's who, who wins there? Nobody wins, you know, like I, then, then I've somehow like, you don't want to push something through. You want it to be something that, that they actually want because then it resonates with their vision for yeah. the project. And, um, so the last thing you want is to actually try to like push through things. So you you've know? never like thrown down, had a hissy fit and said, dude, I'm right. You're wrong. Whether, whether you, whether you, th- you Trumpets. know, but, but here's the thing, there could be, you know, but here's the, ultimately it is an aesthetic. It's an aesthetic question. It's this question of like, I could think that there's something so beautiful for a particular place, but maybe then I'm actually looking at the film from the wrong, through the wrong lens, you know? And, and, and there are a lot of times I would, I would flip it and say, there are actually a lot of times where I've written something that I thought was really beautiful. And then the director said, that's not how I see this at all. And they've been completely right. And, and, and by being fluid with that, you wind up in a, in a much better place. And then each project you're sort of like learning as you go. Like, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, I think we do this because we want to be excited by the next project. We want to learn on the project. We want to try new things. Um, you know, if it was the same kind of thing every time and you were just sort of like, oh, if I do this, then this happens, I think it would get pretty boring. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, for me, one of the one of the best examples of that was the, the swimming sequence in Moonlight where mm. um, I wrote this piece called, that we called The Middle of the World where Juan is teaching Little to swim. This is Mahershala this is in, out this in is the Mahershala, ocean. Exactly, and, and it's ch- chapter one of Moonlight. And, um, I remember I wrote a piece that I thought was, you know, this is already after, um, early on the, the, the medium length version of the story is basically early on. I, you know, after I read the script, the first question I was really trying to figure out for myself was what is this, the movie and the script felt poetic to me. And, Mm -hmm. and I was trying to channel this idea of like, what, what, what sound of music could create this feeling of poetry so I was early on, you know, I was writing pieces of music, like I wrote a piece of music and I called it piano and violin poem. And it was a demo I nice. did piano and Tim Fain on violin, who, you know, you know, Tim. Of course. And so, um, what, what I did was I, you know, early on this was that, and then I got the early cuts of Moonlight and I sent it to Barry and that piece, Barry felt really connected with the film and our, the demo of, of that piece is Little's theme. Actually, oh. in chap, that's that's that is the the sort of point of view. That actual thematic. recording, did the you actual, re-record it? The actual recording. It's just me and Tim. Sometimes you, know? you just yeah. get it. There's a re- the, and and that was something that Barry felt very strongly about was that he wanted everything to feel human. He wanted everything to feel like real instruments. And um and you know I can I can go in more depth on that. But what happened was so for the swimming sequence, which is still in chapter one of the film, I was thinking, okay, little themes in D major. I'm going to do something you know, it's going to be more full. This is a scene that, you know, I was thinking this is a beautiful moment in Little's life where Juan is teaching him to swim, you know, your open sky, you see this, it's very, almost like a sort of a grand, warm, 
feeling. Mm. So I was I put it in F major. It's going to be more orchestral. So that's what it became. What I wrote was not this <laughs> initially. I wrote something that was ha- very happy, and it actually was Little's theme, but with a clarinet playing Little's theme. And I played it for Barry, and he was just like, no, 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 not at all, no. <laughs> and um, what he said to me was, he said he wanted the scene to feel like a spiritual baptism. Oh. You know, this isn't, we're not taking the, the emotional feeling of, it's not, it's not just happiness. This is actually the beginning of the rest of Little's life. This is a very, very significant symbolic moment and we need to feel a bit of what is to come actually not just so instead of thinking sort of micro here's this one moment it's much more macro of what is the whole sweep of this film do you remember how you felt at the end of that conversation were you crushed that your work hadn't been approved and signed off on or were you resigned to the fact that you needed to go back into the workshop well we barry and i work in you know he he was in we were in the studio we were gonna try to figure this out together and that was and and actually when he said that it completely made sense to me um and i saw the sequence in a very very different Mm. way right away and that's one of the fun things with film music is that depending on what the music is in a particular place the scene completely changes i mean it's actually a magical bizarre thing that i don't think i'll ever fully understand how it happens where like you can put a different piece of music up and all of a sudden you're watching a completely different movie different emotions everything you see the scenes so uh when barry said that i was like okay we have to you know i'm gonna go d minor i'm gonna and and i had this you you were on a keyboard there i were in my studio we were in my studio yeah we're looking at the scene and i said to him you know i had always um i've always loved the sound of um these sort of violin arpeggios. Um, and I had this idea of, well, what if I tried to create something that felt more in that emotional world? Uh, and I started exploring these, these violin arpeggios with a, you know, using a violin sample sound in front of Barry. And I started playing this and right there, he just started directing me. He was like, keep going with that, keep going with that. And so I just started, I just kept going with it. <laughs> and, uh, I basically wrote it right there in front of him. And then I, then I wrote out the the music for it. And Tim Fain wasn't in New York at the time. So I, I emailed him the sheet music and I said, you know, can you just take a look at this? And Tim's amazing because, you know, he's, he's just a phenomenal musician, phenomenal violinist. And usually the stuff that I would, give him if he's in the room with me or wherever, you know, he'll be like, Oh yeah, no problem. Let's do this right now. And I remember when I sent him that sort of like cadenza, uh, he was like, you know, give me a couple of days on this one. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sounds difficult. So it's really, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit involved. Um, it's pl- definitely playable, but, but it's a bit involved. And, uh, but then, um, but that was how that happened. So for me, I always think back on that moment because it wasn't just a question of like, Oh, you know, here's what I did and here's where we wound up. It really was a question of going into that bigger perspective of what is really, what is this scene really about? And why, like, why are we putting music here? What a privilege to hear Barry Jenkins come forward to say, this is the bigger idea. Absolutely. As an artist. Absolutely. And I think that's getting the opportunity to collaborate with artists that way and hear their... You know, that's interesting, but it's actually a bigger moment for me in this way. It's just, it's inspiring. It's got to be a great, one of the great joys of the gig. It's the whole, it's the whole thing. I mean, I think being able to have that feeling of, of discovery 
where you're in the room together with a director and you 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 figure something out and you find something and and I've I've loved those op- those opportunities with Barry because we 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 know what that feeling is and every time we're working we're at, we we know it's there and we know it's possible and we don't stop until we find that so like on Beale Street the same kind of thing happened um, with the the score elements that focused on the sense of injustice in the story we initially I had written Barry's first thing that he said to me was about um, he wanted to he thought that the movie could have this sound of brass and horns mm-hmm. that was the first thing he said he didn't say anything more than that. it was just this sort of world of brass and horns and so I started exploring that with trumpets and flugelhorns and French horns and you know trying some different things out um, and the world that was created from that initially was this the, more of the world of love because the movie really focuses on love and mm-hmm. all, in all its forms. But there was this sense of very clear and, and overt injustice, obviously, in the film and in the story. And in those sequences that focused on that, um, in some of the places there actually wasn't score when we were – at least when we were first mapping it out. It was almost a question of like how do – what is the sound of that and how do you do that – justice to that injustice you know emotionally and musically and so for example there's a sequence where uh, the character daniel is talking to fani and telling him about his experience in prison and Mm. and you are and and when i first saw the scene um it's just an incredible scene and there was a a miles davis uh blue and green is playing on the record player fantastic and you know, when we first watched it, I remember saying to Barry, I was like, are we thinking, should we put something here? Or, and, and Barry was like, you know, we got miles, like <laughs> it's yeah. hard to, hard to, right. hard to argue with miles here, yeah. you know? And I, I always would agree with that. Yeah. But however, that was one of those moments where I, for some reason, in the back of my mind, I was like, I think there's, I think there could be something to do. So we focused on other parts of the film. And I remember there was a week, I think it was like April of last year where we were in the studio together in my studio in New York and I just kept coming back to it. I was like, you know, I I think there's something we could do here. Like, can we just try something? And what's wonderful about Barry is he always says, show me. Okay. You know, he'll never, he will never say, don't try. It's all, you know, it may not work, but, but, you know, a hundred things might not work, you know? So we always try it out. And I remember what I did was I started taking uh, the cellos, that are in this piece Eros for that you, you that you hear um, when Tish and Fani are first making love, mm. and I took those and I I just started like distorting them and bending them and lowering them and taking the audio itself and just like bending it and it started to create this really frightening sound that that almost sounded like I mean I think to us it almost sounded like like a ma- like a machine that was being like ha- like warped and mm. it sounded it just sounded ho- horrific and that was one of those moments where you know Barry and I sort of looked at each other and we're like and he, you know he's like keep going with that oh, wow. <laughs> and so we started doing it and what what ended up happening was we created this soundscape for those moments of injustice where the sounds of love in other parts of the film are harmed and distorted so you're hearing basically Whoa. the same thing that is beautiful in this other place but the music has now been you know, warped and almost like there's an attempt to like destroy this sound of love. And that's what you hear in those moments of injustice. And we, you know, again, that was one of those feelings for us where we were, you know, for days we worked on this. And at the end we were just like, what just happened? (laughs) Like, where did we, (laughs) and we, and we said to ourselves, like, we have to like almost like live with this a little bit. Cause we were like, is this almost too, like, is it, it's so different from what we had before. So we had to give ourselves a little time to. I assume it got better it. the more you lived with it and felt yeah. righter. Yeah. 
It's interesting that you are striking all this gold with the director in the room where a lot of composers don't want people in the studio when they're writing. Is this something that you find to be helpful? I love working with a director in the room. Yeah, I feel, um, I mean, I do a lot of work with, with, you know, before the director comes too. I think it's really important to be prepared with, you know, to have your own sensibility, your own set of experiments that you want to try out but those experiments you can't try out unless you're with the director so you know it's almost like you have a list of like hypotheses of like these are you know this is this this is one idea that could go and then we would wind up over here you know but or maybe this could be interesting and if we do that i kind of have a sense well we might wind up over here um but you know so you don't I don't want the director to come over and then I have, you know, and then we're just like, what do we do? <laughs> that's the, I don't think that's necessarily Do you helpful, actually yeah. tap in your pencil? Yeah, yeah, we're just like, oh, <laughs> what do you see think if it happens. Yeah, yeah. Six hours go <laughs> do, by. We don't do that. We don't do that. Do yeah. you play live? Do you make extensive demos to play? Do you do both when I the play director live. comes over? Well, if it's, a, if it's stuff, yeah, usually I will have recorded things beforehand to try out, but depending on what, the director's feeling from those recordings or from those ideas, I'll absolutely play live and try things out and just extend them. Or, you know, I mean, some of the, some of the, my favorite things I've done has, has been directly moment to moment from a, you know, a director or, you know, someone saying, Hey, what about, what about this? It's so you great know, to have the like, guy in the room who you need to work with and, and express to go right to get the immediate the reaction what's better than that it's, yeah what's better be. than that you don't waste yeah. your time no and all well also it's about the creative result we're going for because i just know on and again this is my own kind of process but but if i it, doing stuff over email is really really hard doing stuff long distance is really really hard and i don't think that that doesn't say anything about the relationship itself it just says the fact that distance is hard for everything and if you're not in the same place i mean there are there are 500 ideas you could try out mm. in an hour, and those 500 ideas to try those out over email would take you 50 years. Oh yeah, I'll check it you in 30 I mean? minutes. Like you would never, you would never even begin to get through them. Yeah, and I felt that most strongly. Um, I remember the fr really the first time I'd ever had that kind of a iterative process up close was was on the Big Short. Um, it was with Adam McKay and and Hank Corwin, our incredible editor. Uh, I had come on to the film in May of 2015, April, May Was that your first one with Adam? It's the first project with Adam, yep. yeah. and uh, Such a good movie. Oh, thank you. Adam is amazing. You know, he's just... He's amazing. Just, he's, a, he's brilliant. He's one of the... He's the funniest person I've ever met, for sure, you know? Um, and uh, I remember one of the first uh, conversations we had, you know, I was going to come out to L.A., um, and, and meet everybody. And when I, they were setting me up, we were, it was a Paramount film and Paramount was fantastic to work with. And we were doing post in the Technicolor, uh, building mm -hmm. on the Paramount lot. Yep. And so they were going to give me a little, you know, office studio space where I could write. And the first day I got there, um, Adam and Hank were working in, in their edit suite and they were just like, you know, you want to just come and watch some stuff with us and sit here and we'll just like talk. And I was like, yeah, sure. Let me see, you know, get a sense of the movie. So as we started doing it, I remember Hank was editing this one part and I just said, Oh, you know, I, I think there's something cool we could do with that. Do you want to try it out? And Hank was like, sure. I mean, do you want to bring your laptop in here and maybe the keyboard and we'll just see what happens. And, and so, so I just brought some stuff in there and at not get, I mean, as Hank is like editing, I'm just like playing stuff along as if it's almost like, you know, live to picture. And 
we kind of looked at each other and we were just like, this is pretty great if we could keep doing this for the whole summer. Did any of that um, make it? Absolutely. Like, and did you move absolutely. Oh, yeah. did you move your keyboard in? I ended up having I was both I was basically in both places and whenever there was a, a particular moment, they would just say, Hey Nick, can you come in here? And we There's would, nothing better. It was incredible. And so we we had this you know, that was a situation where literally I was like living there. Um, I, I was living with the McKay's family, actually, the whole the McKay family the whole summer um, uh, in their little pool house, uh, which was wonderful. They're incredibly hospitable. <laughs> uh, and Talk about you know, connecting. We were like immersed. No, we were completely immersed while we You're were like, working Can you on pass that. the syrup? And yeah. what do you think about this cue right oh, now? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, what do you think about this? Like, I, I, you know, um, so we were, I mean, and that's Adam loves movies. I mean, he loves movies. And so we would just talk about movies all the time. We'd watch movies. I remember, you know, at the end of the day, we would like, you know, order some pizza and a little champagne, figure something out and just like watch a movie together. You know, it was, it was great. It was the best. So, so, but that process of being up close and trying things out was a complete revelation to me because it was the most heightened version of that kind of collaborative process. And I think from experiencing it up close and seeing what's possible from that, it changes the way you view all, you know, why wouldn't you want to? That's so that's the ideal is like you're literally in the edit room. That's not always going to happen. And on different projects, that may not be the right thing either. But if you think about the most sort of, uh, you know, extreme version of that and then the the maybe the golden mean version of that is like you're in your studio and the director's there and you're trying things out together. And it's not like you've, you're living in the edit room. But that's, I think, the sort of that's uh, like the optimal way. I think it's so. It's also ideal. a sign of a good connection with yeah. the director if they yeah. want you in there. There's a lot of trust there. Yeah, and and it was it's so helpful for the composer. I mean, you know, seeing the types of questions that they're asking themselves moment to moment about the movie that they're making within. 15 minutes, you have a completely Let me get this different straight. View, so directors know? aren't completely secure about every decision they make. <laughs> it's a conversation. Everyone, everyone's trying to figure it out. Yeah. You know, everyone. I mean, and that was the thing that uh, Adam always would say when we were working. And it, and it was, and I think about it on every project now. It's like, it's, he would always say the movie's going to win in the end. You know, nice. it's, we got, you know, and which means like, you're trying to make the best movie possible. It's all about the movie. It's not about any of us, you know. So if someone has a cool idea and it makes the movie better, it's so generous. That idea that is so yeah. generous. Um, I've certainly known directors that want to make sure they actually come to me as the movie's wrapping. Mm. They shall remain nameless, and said, "You know, I was really involved in a couple of these um, cues, mm. um, kind of helping our composer. Do I get credit?" On those, and I'd always have to say, it's an interesting idea. Um, you're the director, so you get credit on everything. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't it's get, your movie. <laughs> yeah, it's your movie. But I have been asked a couple times for you know, do you get? How does that work? Do you get co-writing credit if you told the composer, I don't think it should be horns. I think it should be a rock band, and they did it, and it worked. Um, I'm just wondering. You know, I'd say. You're the director. You're the director. That, that's that's and but that is the thing. That's part of the director credit is knowing that you that is the role for every department. Actually, Costumes, I mean, actually, I think lighting. that's literally that's the beauty of that role is that the director makes the choices essentially for every department. Correct. And um, you know, and again, I mean, it, I think that's something that when you're working on these films, you see it up close. That like, I think the the role of the director is about choices. It's about all the departments bringing their best ideas and their best instincts. And then ultimately it's the director who's going to choose of, of all those ideas, which are the, you know, which direction are we going? In? And he either yeah. gets the kudos 
or takes the bullet for making those choices. Boy, that was a jam-packed first uh, block there. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break, okay. and um, we we didn't even we wanted to ask you about uh, your path into film scoring. Oh, sure, we jumped right yeah. into all these okay, great yeah. films. It was like <laughs> riveting. Uh, we're gonna take a break. Coming back with uh, a lot more with Nick Bertel right after this. Hey, score fans! It's Kenny Holmes. We're back to the show in just a second. Just a quick reminder: be sure to follow us on Twitter at Score the Podcast. We post a lot of behind the scenes videos, and we'll also keep you up to date on who our next guest is. So make sure to go over and follow us now. Hi, my name is Hildur Kuhnodotter, and you're listening to Score the Podcast. Let's go back to the show. And the Emmy goes to Succession, Nicholas Bratel. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. The Emmy-winning cut right here with... The now Emmy-winning composer Nicholas Bertel. Thank you. I listened to this um, with Kenny a couple days ago, and I said, "I don't know why it gives me a, a little stomach ache to hear this because <laughs> the emotions in the series yeah. and the emotions that you express right here—it's it, it's somewhere between tragic. I can't. It, it hits a, a moment of tragedy and of kind of." melancholy for me it might just be the way i'm hearing the music for sure and uh there's so much packed into this theme it's a lot there it's like it's kind of regal and rich but then it's also street with the beat and you kind of see the dad Mm -hmm. and the kids and the drugs and the drama i mean yeah the tennis there's a moment where they're rich and of course i as you know having worked at a studio that was run by a family I see this whole series in a very particular way. I need to ask you a couple questions about the music we're listening to. Sure. First please. of all, this is for composers who will understand this word. It doesn't feel quantized in the beginning. It feels very human and live. And I thought, which means to those of us who are musical, we're so used to right now hearing very perfect right iterations of music the drums are on time the bass and the piano or how about the three piano hits instead of two that's my favorite part cling 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 it's like a d it's i was trying to do that and actually that was um there's a whole process of kind of doing this sort of thing but i was trying to think of it as almost like if a dj was playing that in a club there that's you'd have it you'd have that kind of a loop where you'd actually like bring it back and then come back i think that's what's fascinating about the theme is it feels instantly a little unsettled that's what i got from the very first time i heard it i thought wow nick decided a couple things first of all he decided that the piano feels almost kind of like a guy's playing it it's not a very up and down synthesized the rhythm track feels like there's kind of shaker or tambourine there's all sorts there's sleigh bells there's all so so it's not what i expected for a succession which would be a really slick this these guys are kind of slick and helicopters and mansions it felt kind of kind of melancholy and, Mm -hmm. and weird the other amazing thing is to hear that cue and that tune come back in different oh the variations orchestrations i realized so you found a piece of music that of all the choices for the theme, you decided to go with the one that starts with drums and piano and rhythm. But I also hear the theme in very different treatments. 
I mean, is anyone going to rap on this? You gonna working on any Come collaborations? On. Goods we'll, humane. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's really it's elegant. That's it's regal in a way of a family drama. That's where the tragedy comes in. As I feel the kind of tragic. Can you just for a fan and the fan and me? What day did you write Succession theme? What had you read or seen or or thought about? Yeah, did or, it come right to you or talked or, about you that know, made you think? Oh, I know what this is. It's interesting. This is actually a variety like that. So this main title theme track was as a totality. It was the last thing I did on the oh, on wow. season one. Yeah, it's like writing yeah. the big single so just as the was, records come out. I don't think I know. I couldn't have written that before the fin- scoring the. So you show. scored the show. So basically, I pilot? had an early idea. Yeah. So I worked on the pilot. No. So it was it was even longer than that. It was I worked on the pilot. Um, and again, that was one of the wonderful things. I'd worked with Adam already. He told me about Succession. He told me he was directing the pilot. Um, and then. I had a little time to think about it and I, I even, you know, I visited set while they were, you know, making the pilot. Um, and I got to meet Jesse Armstrong and we started a conversation. Nice. Jesse Armstrong created the show and is showrunner of the show. And, um, I, I did kind of what I was saying before, you know, I, I, I started exploring some different ideas, some different possible directions that I thought maybe would be interesting for, for the show. And I met with, it was very specific. I we had a, a meeting with Jesse where I started playing him some of these ideas and there was a whole range of things and basically all of the things in their own way got into the series. There mm-hmm. was some of the first stuff I remember in the pilot, there's like a scene where someone comes into an office and he's like saging the room, you know? Mm-hmm. So I remember, you know, I, I, I guess the feeling I always had was I wanted there to be this strangeness in the musical landscape i just had it's just there's this incredible combination of darkness and gravitas and absurdity in the show and so you you know you're trying to do both of those things but you have to do it in a way where you're not harming either one of those extremes so i remember one of the first things i played in was these i had these like zen bell sounds that i was taking and like bending and making them all sort of weird and like someone would walk in a room and you hear a little weird bell (laughs) just strange but kind of funny and odd and jesse was totally into that and then i started playing him some early ideas you know uh this chord progression um which you now hear is in, it the, in the film. it's this sort of it's it's the it's sort of one six you know uh and it's like a two um it's a six minor a half it's a half diminished mm. half diminished is the and yeah, then uh, okay. and then and then uh, there's a suspension five into the five and then back to the one uh, and so you know that that kind of a progression and the and some of these early piano sounds and this idea of these beats you know I started playing him some beats with this stuff and he was into this this kind of stew of ideas mm. um, and I remember the first thing that we really explored together there was I I took some of those ideas and then I started playing with string sounds with some of those chords and I you know. You never exactly know this alchemy of how these things happen, but I remember I started playing those those chords with strings, and immediately it just felt like specific to the series somehow. It felt like this this dark string sound and very low, a lot of low end. You know that was something that was very important. It was it's it's you know the in particular, for example, a lot of the season one stuff is in C minor, mm. and you know if you know with like double basses, I mean that that low C is 
the low note there. So nice. you're getting to that low. You're in a key that the lowest, that the normal tonic bass note is the lowest you can basically go, <laughs> you know? Otherwise, you'd be basically going up. Kind of like the Roy up. family. They it, go there's a dark, low. There's a low, there's a low end, you know? Yeah. And I always, I mean, I, I'm a massive hip-hop fan, and, and that low end, the sound, the you know, and, and interestingly, on Moonlight, um, that's a whole other kind of conversation, but one of the things that we had explored was this idea of chopping and screwing the music I was writing using that style of Southern hip hop where I took my own recordings and slowed them. And can you explain them. for our audience what chopping and screwing is? Cause it's something you've referred yes, to and yes, used in your yes. scores. So chopping and screwing is, uh, it's a, a style of hip hop. Um, the, one of the great pioneers, DJ screw, um, who would, you'd take a, rec- it's, if you take a recording and you basically slow it down, the pitch goes down. And when the pitch goes down, you get this deepened, enriched, soundscape it's just everything is is sort of widened and 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 richer and you can do that with any piece of music but if you do it with beats and things like everything gets deeper and richer and on moonlight in one of the first conversations i'd had with barry he talked about his love of chopped and screw music <laughs> and we had this kind of idea of well what if what if i were to write music for and this was before he had shot the movie I and mean, this was way early it's like what if i wrote a score and what if we applied that technique to my classical sort of oriented compositions for this. And that's one of those ideas that, again, it's an interesting idea, could work, could be terrible, could not work at all. You know, you don't know. And we started doing these experiments early on um, when I was actually working with an early cut, and it did work. It actually it, it provided this whole sense of development for the music where in addition to different thematic elements, you know, music as just music in a way, in addition to just sort of changing the type of music by actually changing the music and changing literally the way the recordings were. So you're also like this other dimension where you're bending the recordings you're making in different ways. Um, It felt to us like that accomplished the development of Little's own evolution Mm. throughout the film. And one of the you know, going back to the succession, one of the sonic results of that was that you ended up with this classical, quote unquote, more orchestral kind of sound that actually was lower than you would normally hear. You know, you you had this like sub layer where, you know, you have cellos that are sounding in like the bass range just because you've bent them. <laughs> and I thought I, I thought that sounded beautiful. And so on succession, one of the, you know, I, I mean, I've always been a fan of the low end of the sonic range, but um, it was important to to focus on that low end. And I think that the one of the keys for me in in scoring succession was this the darkness and the and the seriousness mm-hmm. of it because it's a very serious. You know the 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 fundamental of the story is it's a it's basically about this these increasing concentrations of power and wealth among you know smaller and smaller groups of people and succession focuses on families you know in the media industry but obviously the story translates to any you know any type of industry really and focuses on that what happens with those extreme concentrations yeah. of wealth and power so that's all in very serious subject it's one of the great important subjects of our time and so the music has to be serious to this story and the darkness and the ways that people behave. Um, but when, whenever you get close with human stories, obviously human stories are multi-dimensional. I mean, some of it's you know? funny. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. And and the and the moment to moment, the trivialities and the and the, the, the hatreds and the you know the the feuds and the petty I mean, all these things that are human, you you have to laugh. You know, you because it is funny. And so 
one of the big questions that I had while I was working on it was this question of like, what is, how do, what do you, what do you do with music if you're trying to both be funny at times or not yeah. harm the comedy right. and also give due import to the gravitas. gravitas. So the way that I, this is my own ex- experimenting with it was that if the music ever got funny, uh, it was not funny. <laughs> like it actually felt really dorky and, 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 and harmed the comedy. But whenever I made the music even more serious, that's when it felt really funny. So I, I, so when I needed to be serious, I was serious. And when I needed to be funny, I was even more serious. Wow. Cause that adds the humor and absurdity. Exactly. I mean, and, and the degree of like, it's almost like the difference between what you're hearing and what you're seeing is so huge. Yeah. They just have to laugh. Makes me wonder about some of the funny scenes. Now I want to go back and listen. <laughs> to the score? I don't know why the one music that comes up is <laughs> anything with Greg, basically. It's anything with Greg. I, I was just thinking of one. Well, the Greg, the, the Greg actually. There's a piece, There's like a hip hop track of mine that plays when uh, when you see Greg at times, and it's not always with him. But the the piece is this track "Power" uh, that's on the soundtrack, and uh, it's this instrumental hip hop track that. You know, it. I think the counterpoint of hearing that with Greg it's just so makes, badass. Makes me and he's such a goofball. <laughs> and he's like, you know, shredding these dogs. He has no idea what he's doing. So those are those right. are. Um, you know, there's that. But um, but yeah. To but to go back to the um, the story of the theme track. So I had those initial ideas. Then from that meeting with Jesse, I started exploring this dark, classical oriented harmonic soundscape. You know, um, and I what I, I found, and what I oh yeah, and what I found interesting with that too was that like. It was very specific, like there's a there's a sound to that era. There's certain chord progressions, certain nuances of the style of that time. It's not er, it's not early classical. It's not the romantic era of classical. It's really sort of like you know late 1700s or something like that. That and I've I've always loved that sound that sound world. So, um, but it was funny how certain things just didn't sound right either. It wasn't like oh just write classical mu- sounding music. Some stuff did not sound. Right. Well, also, they're in yeah. contemporary or reasonably That's, contemporary New York City with glassy exactly. buildings and high So it was very stuff. hardcore. To, I was hardcore with myself. Like, what, what felt right? I remember even for season two, there were certain... I remember writing stuff that I thought was really cool. And then I was like, you know, it just sounds too something. Didn't, it just didn't sound like the Roy's, you know? Was so, there yeah. a cue in the pilot that sounded like the theme and somebody said, you know, this could be our theme? Uh, well, actually, we tempt the pilot with my with me. I was involved early on. That was one of the things that Adam did was he said, you know, he brought me on before they had shot it. And one of the nice things was I actually wrote while we were doing the way it usually works with pilots is, you know, you work on the pilot and you you get it pretty far along. And then the studio you know, or the will, will decide, do they want this to go to series? And then once that decision happens, you'll then go and you'll actually finish the the show and right. probably go do production on the rest of the episodes. Um, but even on the pilot that we did, we, we fleshed the ideas out really fully. I mean, some of the pieces that are in the finished season one were done just me and Adam trying out ideas. There's a culmination piece in the end of uh, the pilot episode that um, builds that's um, I don't think that exact version is on the soundtrack. It's a piano version of, of one of the pieces that's on the um, sound, soundtrack. Uh, but that was something that I did with Adam actually, again, just in the studio with Adam, you know, we were just, I was trying stuff out and I felt that it was those chords, but taken in a more sweeping kind of way and a more building kind of a way. Um, and so the, the, you know, to cut to the chase of this, it's that the, after, after I finished scoring the whole 10 episodes of season one, 
I had left this 90 second opening blank just because I, I, everyone was into the theme, the theme idea. Everyone was into the piano, the sort of, and I can talk about how I made those things, but, but the actual track itself didn't exist. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know which, you know, what, like I had an idea for the A section, which I thought was going to be this idea, this piano, the sort of winding piano idea. But the B section, I wasn't exactly sure. Um, there was a there was one theme idea, I thought, but I didn't know how it would sound. I actually was playing with piano, but it didn't feel right. I didn't want it to be piano, and then you have a B section with piano, and then you know that didn't feel right. So, um, so it was. I think it took the full scope of the season one before I had the sense of like, oh, let me synthesize this together, and then now, and then I did it actually pretty quickly. I, you know. It, it just sort of came together. Um, but, That's so backwards yeah. of what I thought <laughs> the story was going to be. <laughs> because the th- it seems like you created the main title and then all of these variations came off of that. But it's so completely the, backwards from what I thought. The chord progression, so all the individual elements of that existed in sort of different ways. So the chord progression became very, fe- you know, featured the that some of that winding piano was its own thing and then I did variations on that. Um, the 808s and the beats was, all, you know, so all all those elements existed in their own ways, uh, but they weren't all in one kind of place and yet. The yeah. fabulous culmination of it is you won the Emmy for best main title. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it all, all of these cracked versions of how you Different got to a destination. And, yeah, exactly. Ends up with that thing you have to get through customs <laughs> or it's the fantastic. TSA. Have you figured that out? Yeah. Uh, so we, that's the- <laughs> we can't go without talking about your, your path into this. And we like sure. to do this with a lot of our guests. Um, you went to Harvard. Um, was film music like on the radar from an early point in your life? Or do you have family that's in the biz? Like what, what's your starting point with film music? So I, when I first started playing the piano, I was, uh, I was five years old. And the reason I started playing the piano was because I saw Chariots of Fire nice. and I was obsessed with Chariots of Fire and I thought the, the, the score was amazing. I mean, I, I, wanna, I didn't know what a score was, but I loved that I want to put an music. asterisk on yeah. this reference because, strangely enough, I hadn't thought of this until you mentioned it. The succession theme, which is kind of a contemporary rhythm track mm-hmm. with a piano over it, mm-hmm. not entirely far conceptually musically very different from the chariots of fire it's interesting theme, there's like a piano is, and a beat and a, and a, and a rhythm and mm-hmm. so yeah. it it got under your dna somehow of vangelis is a genius i mean the so music, rare the music that people he, give him props oh my god he's a genius that the, the 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 sound worlds that he created and the thing too is i i feel I, i've always loved melodic ideas you know i think it's one of the hardest things to distill maybe but there are certain composers through history you know whether you're talking about a paul mccartney or a schubert who have this insight and he does you know vangelis had that ability to to coalesce ideas into both a rhythmic and melodic kind of place but they're beautiful there had to be a distance because we have to get to the fact that you ended up even though you heard vangelis and knew you were musical I can't remember exactly, but I know that you became an expert in currency, oh, so I, which might have been a diversion that's from a, your that's path. All. Well, I'll tell you the quick. So the quick story was basically I I started I asked my mom for piano lessons after um, after I you know heard the the Chariots of Fire score and uh, started you know learning piano and I I really seriously considered being a concert pianist. That mm. was my whole you know childhood was playing the piano and I gave my first 
public concert when I was 10, you know, so I was like very in that, in that zone. And I love playing the piano and I love classical music. I went to Juilliard for the pre-college division um, mm. while I was in high school. Um, and Where'd you then, grow up? I uh, grew up in Manhattan. Oh, and wow. And okay. we moved to uh, Westport, Connecticut when I was 13. And so we were there. Did you commute? I would commute on Saturdays and then sometimes during the week for lessons as well. But it's a Saturday program at Juilliard. Mm. Um, and I met, you know, actually I met so many of my closest friends to this day and people I still work with. And um, I actually met my wife uh, through Juilliard pre-college as well. We Lovely. Met, uh, a cellist. Uh, Caitlin Sullivan. Yeah. An yep. amazing cellist. And uh, we, we met actually at the Aspen Music Festival right after uh, pre-college graduation. I mean, the question would uh, be, yeah. why didn't you go to Juilliard? I thought about that. You know, I think I was, you know, like, you know, like anyone, I guess, to some extent, you know, when you're in in high school, the, you, you don't know how the world works, really. And, and I had a lot of different interests. I always loved music, um, but I don't think I had a sense of exactly how I would explore music for myself. Um, I loved movies and, you know, the funny thing is, in hindsight, like, honing in on the things that you deeply love that just feel so connected to you in some way. Those are the things maybe we should all be doing, <laughs> but that's only in hindsight. I mean, at the time I was like, of course I love film music, but how do you, how do you even do that? What do you do? You know? And when I went to Harvard, um, I, had a, I actually had a really hard freshman year. I couldn't figure out what to do with myself. And I took a year off after freshman year mm. to, you know, explore the piano and try to get, and basically say to myself, do I want to be a concert pianist and, you know, giving concerts. And, um, I was a cocktail pianist as well, nice. you know? Uh, and when I came back from that year off, um, I knew actually, I, I knew I wanted to be in a band. That was something I really wanted to be in a band. And, um, and coincidentally or serendipitously, uh, a very dear friend of mine, Nick Lavelle, who tragically passed away a few years ago, um, who's an amazing director. He was making his first feature, film at, mm. in college while we were there and he said do you want to score this movie and so i yeah, it was like of course i'd love to try that i had no idea what that entailed sure. um but i'd watched movies obsessively for my whole life and always studied you know just just unconsciously was always studying the music my little brother and i would all we were obsessed with film music when we were growing up you know so that was my college experience then was very focused on i had a i was in a hip-hop band um, and called the witness protection program with nice. some very good friends of ours, <laughs> nice. instrumental hip hop. We had two rappers and then six, uh, instrumentalists. Um, so it was really a very live, uh, hip hop band. And, um, and then, uh, I was scoring my friend's movie and experimenting. And then actually I had another friend, uh, who, uh, James Cox, who had made a documentary, uh, and he asked me to score that. Mm. So it was just this process of trying things out and having no idea what, how you did anything, but I bought a Korg Triton keyboard. Cool. Um, and, uh, I still use that as my controller in my studio to this day. I love that keyboard. And, um, I just, you know, I would use the sequencer and this was, I had no other, I had no pro tools, nothing. I would just like use the sequencer and I ended up writing like a three hour or orchestra score that was all, you know, synthesized basically <laughs> for this movie, but it was such a great experience to do that. And, um, and then the, the 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 detour into some currency trading was after at the end of college the band was breaking up unfortunately and um, I thought the movie would come out but it but wasn't yet figuring out how that would happen and I actually um, got hired by someone who uh, I wanted to live in New York and I and I was uh, I had a very good friend uh, who worked in finance and he introduced me to someone who himself was a composer who want who said you know you know uh, you seem like we could you know, seem halfway, 
you know, smart and we could figure something <laughs> out. He literally said, we'll figure something out for you to do. I mean, if you, and I thought that for about, I thought for like six months, you know, I'll sort of, you know, have this cool job. And then I was like, oh, but you know, I'm going to, my, this movie's going to come out and, you know, figure that out. It'd be great. You know? And so wait, so, what yeah, kind of job was this? I started trading currencies and, uh, and I was, and I learned all about how you do that. And I would, you know, travel and do research. And I mean, it was, it was, it was very interesting. You know, I mean, it was very, it was a great education, but the more that I worked in New York, the more I wanted to do music full time. And actually I got very, you know, got to a place where I was very unhappy because I wasn't focused on what I loved and I was scoring friends, short films, you know, I was, uh, I was playing the piano. I would give concerts, you know, for people. And, um, and I did a lot of, uh, I, I would basically do anything. I mean, I, I wrote like telephone hold music. I, nice. you know, I, I, I would do anything. So your job yeah. allowed you to live in Manhattan, yes. but you hated doing it over time, but it was basically putting you in position for all this other musical work. So it was kind of a double-edged sword. Exactly. So I, so I was saving my money. I bought a piano, you know, I I had always wanted to have a Steinway. So I bought a Steinway and I was building a studio and, um, and, but it was, it was harder and harder. I think just on a personal level to not, there was a greater divergence between what I wanted to do and what I was able to do during the day. And so I quit my job and I just started coming out to LA and, um, you know, just trying to have coffee with people and say, Hey, you know, I, anyone's looking for any music for any anything um you know uh and 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 i did a lot of short films i loved working on short films i had some very dear friends who were themselves directors or producers who were working and trying to themselves you know uh build their careers in in hollywood and um early on you know it was it's really through just the support and and friendships of 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 people who uh, believe in you who say, yeah, you know, let's try this out. So a very dear friend of mine, Adam Leon, uh, directed a movie called give me the loot. And he, uh, gave, that was really the first indie feature that I scored, um, that went through the festival circuit. And, um, you know, those, those opportunities where you do that and then you get to see how, how the industry really works. Mm. You get to go into the festivals, I think was always such a fantastic, um, uh, experience because you meet other people, you know, you meet more of the community of people who are all trying to figure this out together. We're all just trying to figure this out. <laughs> you know, it's, there's no right way to do this. No one way. Um, and then, you know, things, you know, things go from, from one thing to another, but that was the, you know, it was definitely a circuitous path and I'm, I feel more connected to what I do now than I ever have in my life. And that's the thing I think that I feel when I'm composing, which is there's something about, when you get, if you love music, writing music and um, writing something that you that, that you feel, and then that other people can then share that feeling, is a very special experience. And ironically, I was the beneficiary of your currency knowledge because Nick <laughs> and I had the opportunity to work on a picture overseas together. It's true. And um, I think I was going to. Change some dollars oh, I <laughs> at like a you know either an airport exchange place combio whatever and Nick said very sagely don't do that you're walking you're walking up to the counter like right <laughs> right I'm gonna let right, me, I'm gonna get this I'm gonna give you two hundred bucks let me have some euros they're like and, here's three dollars right and right I think if I'm not mistaken and now of course this shows how my retention is 
I think one of your suggestions was that it's actually better to go to a cash machine yeah. with a Visa card. Yeah, you get a much better uh, exchange rate if you do it from an ATM than if you do it. Score a, the yeah. podcast. I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. This is there's, there's additional commissions that they take Sharing. out from the I love the, that you scored a movie exchange. called yeah. Give Me the Loot. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> first indie feature. Give me the, yeah. And that we've gotten in the Nick Bertel episode to, you know, how when you go overseas. Yeah. Yeah. But, We're going to get you on next season. We'll do a whole financial advisor. Sure, yeah. I think we'd be remiss before we finish up without sharing the fact that I had the great privilege of hiring Nick to do the interstitial music on a, God bless him, slightly bizarre motion picture that I to this day I'm not sure has ever been released, which is can happen. Um, and it was because... I was looking at 12 Years a Slave, which you said you had worked on, and I wondered who did the period music that was really interesting, and I mentioned it to someone who said, oh, I know Nick Bertel. You guys should meet. And Nick, something you referred to earlier today, said that period, because the movie we worked on took place during the reign of, correct me if I'm wrong, it was one of the Louis, the 16th? 14th. 14th, thank you, I was close. That might be why the movie didn't work. I thought it was the 16th <laughs> the whole time. It was Louis the 14th, and um, Nick said, I know that period cold, and I know what kind of instruments they would play, and the girl in the movie is a cellist, and Nick says cellos weren't invented. But they played a. There were there were cellos, but there would have been different kinds of. Uh, we were we actually tell wound me did up, we find one? We ended up we ended up creating an instrument for it. I remember we made an instrument. Yeah, made of course, it, yeah, this is all the it. effort that goes into a movie that nobody ever knows about. We created it, but I think with all due respect to the filmmakers, the great joy of that project was we got to spend some real quality time at Versailles in France. They put us up at a beautiful hotel. We had to shoot. Between 6 p.m. and dawn, because the tourists came every day at 6.30 a.m., and we had a masterful hang. I loved hanging with you, Rob. It was it was incredible. It was incredible. We re- those are really some of the most memorable experiences. I mean, it was you know, a blast. We got to we got to jam together a little bit. Did we? I have a great photo of you play, like sitting at a harp. Inside I of think Versailles. it was a prop. I think it was a beautiful harp. Yeah, I, prop, prop. I love that. I'll Please send, send, I'll that, send you that I'll send you that. We'll picture. post that on there. <laughs> it's a great picture. And I think the really memorable photo from this, which I thought would be kind of fun to send to the producer who had hired me and then I hired you, um, while we were shooting at 6, you know, we're now at 3 a.m. in the morning, we're shooting music scenes, and it's just crazy. We're in Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors, and it, it's a movie crew in there, and we're shooting these scenes. And I, you know, long time between takes. And so I kind of sneak down a hallway while they're getting ready for the next take. And I found Louis XIV's bedroom, which was in Versailles. It was down a hallway and down this other hallway. And it was roped off for the tourists. You could go a certain distance into the room, but there were red ropes. I thought, it's 3 a.m. Take Nobody's a nap? Here. <laughs> you napped on Louis it, the 14th I got into Louis bed? the 14th I can't bed, believe this. And I took a I can't selfie. believe this. You I have took, that photo? Not only did I have a photo. It's contraband. I, I thought it'd be a good idea to send it to the producer. Oh, that's... Saying, hey, man. <laughs> Probably not. This is, and he, I would say flipped out. Would You know, we'd be arrested <laughs> in France. That's like... There's, there's an extra... The, there's extradition papers being right. dropped. The right one now. question, though. Yes. Did you make the bed? I did make the bed. I left it a little crumpled. In fact, today, <laughs> if you go to Versailles and it's look at Louis XIV, this is you, sacrilege. You see the indent. <laughs> oh. And they're like, that's where Louis last 
arrested. <laughs> That's it. There's Pe- a photo of Robert Kraft. <laughs> but I also thought, you know, Louis the Fourteenth was a guy. This is more information that no one needs. Who was infamous for? He had a lot of women housed in Versailles. Oh in, boy, in Here the East Wing. So that when the sun came up, oh my God, the Sun King, who Louis the Fourteenth was, they would see the sun when they pulled their curtains open and be reminded of him. And I thought, I'm gonna lie in this bed, get some energy, take a selfie. Hey, man, you know, you and me, Louis the Fourteenth, we're bonding over 400 years. The producer didn't see it that way for some reason. <laughs> he he thought you're gonna get this movie shut down and kicked out. You're forever gonna be known as Robert the Fourteenth. I like really. that. <laughs> the Sun King, sort of. <laughs> Anyhow. Oh, what a great man. project what that a, was. What a, I think that's a great way to close this episode out. Nick Bertel in the house telling us so much. You left your lonely Emmy. She's all by herself at the hotel room. We want all to let back you get at back the ho- to her. at the hotel room. I have to figure out how to I'll figure out how to bring it back. Yeah, I think <laughs> boy, would be you know be great to post a photo of you with a TSA agent. Actually, it. yeah, if I figure out this process, yes. Are you back, <laughs> back to New York soon? Uh, I'm working here a bit this week, and then I'm back next week. Right yeah. on. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I yeah. know we've been trying to get you on the show, and it couldn't have happened at a more perfect time because perfect. you just won the freaking Emmy. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, Crazy. Best of luck to Thank everything so in the future, Thank and you. we really Thank appreciate you. you coming on all the way from uh, New York City. Uh, we want to remind our listeners to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and click subscribe. And also stick around after the end of this show. We're going to play you a demo cue from Spitfire so you can hear how to elevate your music. Robert. And I just have to say, as Nick always says to me, respect. Respect. (laughs) R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Nick Bertel, thanks so much. We will see you next week. Thanks Thanks for having me here. Hey, score listeners! The whole team is here. Say hello, everyone. Hey, hey. hi, hi. Uh, we're <laughs> we're very excited about the partnership we have with Spitfire Audio, our presenting partner. Uh, so many of the composer guests we have on love the products, and um, we were able to share this promo code with you to save a third off score if you use that in the checkout. And yeah. uh, they give us a cue every week to play you, so you can hear some of the examples of the different types of instruments that you can get in the, the different packages. And this is music they've produced with these packages that they Correct. have available. Yep. Um, and, and they have the different packages. There's the Albion One. There's now the BBC Symphony that's coming Ooh, out uh, yeah. at the end of October. So a lot of different things to choose from. And use uh, our promo code SCORE to save a third off. How much, Robert? 33 and one-third percent. That's, that's a lot. That's like... Three times tax or more, depending on where you live. That's a lot. That's a big savings. Uh, So check out this queue.
You can get all sorts of different sounds like the ones you just heard. Go to spitfireaudio.com, use the promo code SCORE, save a third off, and we will see you next week. Next week. Can't wait. See ya.